Well, today we begin a, a new teaching series that we're calling Neighboring. And I love how God in his sovereignty likes to line up what's happening in my life with what I'm preaching on so that I can really be living it and, and fully immersed in it. And, and the theme of my weekend has, in fact, been neighbors. We moved into a new home just a block back a week and a half ago. And this weekend, our first uh, full weekend of actually living in the house and not renovating and whatnot, uh, was also the annual neighborhood block party. And so uh, Friday night, I had a, a, a posse of men come and knock on my door and, and said, welcome to the neighborhood. This is your hazing initiation. Hop in our car. We're going to the YMCA and we're picking up inflatables for the block party. And uh, it really was sincerely a hazing initiation because what they didn't tell me was that kids have been using these inflatables that we're using for free for our block party all summer long at the YMCA camp. In fact, they had just used it that day, and they're water slides, and so they're full of water, caked in mud, each weighing about a ton, and there were six of us. They said, last year we struggled, we had 11 men. This year it's six of us, but we're going to do it. And so we were just bear-hugging these inflatables, covered in mud. It was, it was a, a great time. And Whenever I came back to the house, my wife is inside, and she's painting and trying to get the, the new home ready, and she said, what did they do to you, Josh? Because <laughs> I literally was covered head to toe in mud. I'm sweating. I'm just, my new kicks were all destroyed. It was just, it looked awful, and she thought, man, that, since they were serious when they said, so they said they were going to do some hazing here, and so all day Saturday, we had the inflatables blown up and had an amazing time at our block party, met tons of neighbors, lots of new friends, and just a really exciting time. So I love, I love how God does that for me, is whenever I'm preaching on something, he kind of lets my life line up there, and it just affirms for me that he is, in fact, calling us to do this. And so we're going to be looking at neighboring for the next few weeks together. And so Matthew chapter 22 is our passage. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, if you need a Bible, we have some in the seats here. And if you don't have one back at home, take that one, bring it home and break it in. We'd be glad for you to have a copy of God's Word Back at your house. But Matthew 22, 34 through 40 is our scripture. I'll tell you, while, while you're turning there, this passage used to be my mainstay, my passage. This was my, my passage when I was 17, 18 years old, just started preaching. This was, for me, just the go-to passage. This is the one I always went to. And I remember my first few sermons as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, getting up on stage and so nervous. Knees were, were knocking. I had this thing called dry mouth. Anybody? Where your mouth just get, it feels like it's full of cotton balls. And I literally could barely even uh, move my, my jaw. And so to deal with the nerves, I tried all the different tricks that they tell you to do. You know, I, I tried to picture people, you know, looking like chickens, dressing chicken costumes. And I, I tried the whole everybody's in their underwear. And that just felt wildly inappropriate for church. And so I, that one didn't work. And, and it, nothing helped. I just, I just had to kind of fight through and do reps. You know, the more reps you do, the, the more comfortable you get. And I'd get up there and I'd say, turn, turn. Turn in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 22, and I'd start to loosen up a little bit, and over time I'd be comfortable enough to get away from the, the lecture, and, and I'd just start preaching, and then eventually just start passionately proclaiming this passage. I just felt like people weren't living out this passage, and so I would just call people to live out this passage. And, and as I grew more and more comfortable with preaching and crowds and traveling and speaking at youth things and, and, and whatnot, I started to kind of move on to more sophisticated passages of scriptures, ones that required me to really study and to understand the original languages. And so I went off to Bible college and then off to, 
to, to seminary, passages of Scripture that theologians had to wrestle through uh, throughout the, the ages. And I thought, now I can join into the wrestling match, and we can get into some really hard, difficult passages. And I grew to just come to a place where I just kind of left this passage here in the dust. And today, you know, because I believe that every word on every single page of the Scriptures are inspired by God, we're convinced that we've got to walk through the whole of the Bible, and so we're going through these difficult books of Scripture. We just finished with First Peter and, and went through what I think is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament to walk through. And so we just kind of move on to more difficult, more challenging things. But at the same time, one thing that I, I've learned through the years is that oftentimes for us as Christians, a desire to, to go deep can kind of mask an unwillingness to obey the most simple and the most familiar of scriptures, one like Matthew chapter 22. And so let's, let's read it together if we can. This is a simple, familiar scripture, but are we really living it out? Let's read it. Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Is that familiar? For many, I'm sure it's familiar. Let's, let's grab a little bit of context if we can. The, the preceding chapter, chapter 21, we have the, the triumphal entry. This is the very end of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. And he would die here after entering into Jerusalem at the end of the week. And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in chapter 21, self-fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem having salvation, humble, and and mounted on a donkey. And so the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders knew what Jesus was up to, and they were enraged at this. How dare he come in humble and mounted on a donkey. On top of that, the very next morning, he enters into the temple, and he makes this crazy scene, and he starts flipping over tables the second time, mind you, that he has done that in his ministry. And so they're enraged at this Jesus guy. Nonetheless, though, people gather around Jesus and want to hear what he has to say, and he starts to teach and to preach, and people are intrigued with how he does it and the power in which he uses these words and the authority in which he speaks. And while that's all happening behind the scenes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees conspire. How can we get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth? If you look at chapter 22 up in verse 15, it tells us that the Pharisees went and, and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Let's get him to say something wrong where we can accuse him and he can be guilty and we can take him out. Verse 34 here tells us that Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees when they had brought him this this trick question about resurrection and life after death. Verse 29, he tells them, you're wrong. He says, you don't know the scriptures. He says, you don't know the power of God. If you're a religious leader in that day and some guy walks in and says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't even know the power of God. You have no power behind anything that you do or say. You think they were angry? 
They were, they were angry, right? And so in, in rare occasion here, we have the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees joining together. They don't tend to join together. They're joining together to trip up Jesus. And so in verse 34, it says the Pharisees, they gather together with the same purpose that the Sadducees had to take Jesus out, and, and they're scheming. Verse 35 says, here's what they came up with. A lawyer steps forward, and, and he asked Jesus this question. Why does he ask Jesus a question? What does it say? Verse 35. To test him, right? They want to test him. And what's the question that he asked? Verse 36, he says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And so an expert in the law asked Jesus a question about the law. And Jesus gives the very easy answer to a very easy question. Verse 37, he says, here's the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your your mind. Easy, right? That's known as the Shema, the, the, the first scripture that a Jewish child would learn and memorize in song format. And so why did he give Jesus this very easy question? Just gives him a softball. Well, the, the thinking likely was an open-ended question gives Jesus enough rope that he can hang himself, that he might indict himself. He's already said some very interesting things about the law up to this point. And so maybe if we just give him this open-ended question about the law, he'll say something crazy and hang himself and indict himself. And Jesus gives him the, the very textbook, by the book answer, the Shema from the Torah, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord with every part of your being. Which is a great reminder for us that God does not get our leftover love, our leftover affection, our leftover time, This isn't, we come do this, and we come be a part of what God's up to. If we have time, God gets everything. He's he's the priority. And so the teacher pops the question, first week of school for Boston Public, teacher pops the question, Jesus nails it, doesn't he? But wait, he's not finished. Is he tying the, the noose right now? He goes on, verse 39, he says, and a second is like it. Like it? A second is is like it. Like the first one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's again quoting more Torah. This is a Leviticus 19.18. Jesus says, the second commandment that I'm giving you is, is like the first, or as near to the heart of God as the first, that if you love God with every ounce of your being, you will what? You will love your neighbor as yourself. Let me say that again. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's familiar. And there's no need for me to dissect the original language here. There's no need for me to, to break down the, the, the parts of speech here for you to understand it. It's pretty simple. It's pretty clear, right? The question is, do we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? And and how important is it? According to Jesus, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so what's the law and the prophets? We're talking about the Mosaic Law, and we're talking about the recorded prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament era. That would be their entire Bible. So, 
all of the Bible, the entirety of the Bible that we come to study and to go deep every week with, hinges upon what? These two commandments. Will you love God with everything? And will you, flowing out of that, love people as much as you love yourself? The Apostle Paul says it most succinctly in Galatians chapter 5.14. He says, for the whole law, the whole Bible, is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you feel the weight of that? I've been praying all week that we would feel the weight of that. It wouldn't just come across our, our way this morning, familiar as it's always been. That we would see how huge this is. That it's the central command of the, the, the scriptures. That we would love God and we would love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. When we set out to start this new church here in this side of Boston just a few short years ago, we asked, what would happen if a group of people could live out the two greats of scripture? G-R-E-A-T-S. What would happen if we could become a church that, that lived out the two greats of Scripture? And what are the two greats? We're talking about the great commission and the great commandment. The great commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 21, go therefore and make disciples, you know it, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the very end of the age. The Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Look around the room. We have people represented from all nations. It's starting to happen. Praise God for that. And the Great Commandment, as we said, love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And we cannot fulfill the Great Commission, unless we start with the great commandment, because we won't know anybody to make disciples of. We won't be actively loving anybody to make disciples of. And so we have to set out to be good neighbors, and then from that make disciples. And the way that we said as a church, as we prayed and sought to see where God was opening doors, that we would go about being good neighbors, is is we would involve ourselves in neighborhood initiatives. And we've done that as a church. We've been really plugged into the, the local neighborhood farmer's market. We've invested into to local neighborhood housing developments. We've uh, involved ourselves in greening and cleaning initiatives in, in, in the neighborhood. We've started a mentorship program for, for at-risk youth. We've, we've added to the, the, the ethic of the neighborhood by doing community movie nights and other uh, activities for our community just to make it a safer, enjoyable, fun place to be where we could build relationships. And, and flowing out of these neighborhoods, initiatives. We met people and made disciples of people. And in our church, 50% of our people are new believers who have come to faith through these initiatives. Praise God for that, right? That's amazing stuff. We praise God for that. That's why, that's why we're doing what we're doing. And we're going to continue to do this work. But throughout the course of the summer, God has been doing something in my heart. And here's where I've landed. Is that, Josh, we, we put a lot of effort into neighborhood initiatives but what if now we took the great commandment literally and we weren't just loving our neighborhoods but we were actually each individually scattering we gather and then we scatter and we scatter from this place and we literally literally love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves 
Do you even know your neighbors? And I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. I know we got those people, right, in our, in our lives. Some of them, they'd be crazy, right? Like, like the phone lady. Anybody got the phone lady? Her window's open or steps out on her deck and she's talking at the top of her lungs and you know every intimate detail of her life because she talks so loud you just like preach it, preach it, right? Or the dump across the, the street that you wish they would just step out of their house and pull some weeds or paint a little bit, you know, because they're depreciating the value of your home. Anyone? Yeah? Or, or the pot house. It's like every time they open the door, there's this cloud of ganja that just, you know what I mean? Anybody? I, you know you have that house. Or the sound system, the kid rolls up at midnight, this is thumping. You just got the kids to sleep and they're all up again and you're, oh, that kid, right? Or the, the, the neighbors upstairs that have the, the little toddler who's starting to walk and do, 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 right when you finally fall asleep. And what if we took the great commandment, literally, and said, okay, he means he wants me to love those people. And so maybe I could be the end, other end of the conversation for phone lady. And we could actually speak to her. Or I could actually figure out what's going on with the neighbors across the street with the messy house. And maybe you find something out like they're caring for an elderly parent and they don't have time and you could gather some people together to, to care for that. What if we took an interest in the pot people rather than calling the police? What if we struck up a conversation with the kid with the sound system about his rims or his car and started to get to know him and maybe find out that he doesn't have a father figure in his life and you could be that, that male presence in his life that he really needs? Or, or, or what if you offered to babysit for the evening for the family upstairs? Because you know that life is crazy up there and you remember when you were there. Or maybe you're not there yet, but you have some free time on your hand and you could provide them a night out. Right? What, if, what if we loved our neighbors as much as we loved ourselves? What if we got really good at neighboring? What if we all got really good at, at, at neighboring? My brother lives in, in Chicago, and he works for city management for C- Chicago. He just got this promotion and a big office, nice windows. It's cool. He's excited about it. But for the past few years, he's worked as the chief public relations officer. And so essentially what that means, he's a professional Facebook guy, and uh, he's also a Twitter guy and Instagram guy and all of that stuff. But he's also uh, the guy that has this, this email box that he just is constantly walking through, and this voicemail box that he's constantly walking through of complaints and of ideas and of thoughts from residents who he has to hear them out, you know? And so he takes all of the stuff that comes his way, and and he's telling about all the different things, people complaining about the neighbor's sound system or the highway noise or this or that or the timing of the lights. And I said, this is just crazy, man. I mean, what do you do? How how do you fix all these problems? And I'm thinking about it as, you know, from the perspective of the person on the other end of the line, I get that. I could see how that would be a frustration. You don't know who to call, so you call the city, and then you talk to my brother, right? I, I, I get that. And, and I began to think about how impossible it would be for his local government to respond to all the needs that come his way. And he just says, I'm just constantly like, that sounds good. Why don't you go knock on the door? Or uh, we have something coming up next year in next fiscal budget program, so wait. You know? And he's just, con- I said, it's impossible. I mean, how could this possibly happen? And, and the reality is, 
Government programs and ordinances are good and helpful, but they can only do so much, right? They can only do so much. They can slap a fine on the dump across the street for not following the, the codes. Or for the pot people, you could call the cops and they could come and, and say something. Or for the sound system kid, they could come by and tell him to, to turn it down and maybe help him get plugged into a city-sponsored youth program. Or for the parents upstairs, the government could put together some kind of government-funded parenting program initiative. They could do something. And there's a place for these resources and these, these programs, but the reality is the city can only do so much. We can only do so much. And in fact, who attends these programs anyways, right? Oftentimes it's the same 10 people go to all the programs. But what if there was already a system in place to meet many of the needs of these people? A, a matrix of relationships that already exist. There is. It's called a neighborhood. See, Jesus is, is brilliant, isn't he? That the infrastructure is already there. We just have to activate the program. We have to be good neighbors. It's so simple. And it's, it's biblical. American Christianity has made the mission of Jesus so complicated, hasn't it? I go on like third world missions trips. I'm like, this is simple. Whenever it gets heavy and tough here in Boston, I think, I just want to move to Africa and just live in a hut and just simple ministry, just meet people and care for people, and that would be easy. Get out of this place, right? We make it so complicated. Program after program after program. What if we just said, we're going to be good neighbors? That's how we're going to live out the mission of Jesus. We're going to be good neighbors, It's not about another program and the next budget and raising up the leaders to to get there. Jesus says simply, love your neighbor. The whole Bible is summed up in this command. Love your neighbor. Author and pastor Jay Pathak says it this way. He says, a good neighbor always trumps a good program. Is that true? I believe that. What if we actually loved our actual neighbors. We have this ready-built system for the mission of God. This ready-built system to meet needs and to have our own needs met, the people around us. And now, this is the point in the sermon where the excuses start to fly. You feeling it? They're starting to well up within you? Well, I, I, I mean, my work, I don't have enough hours. It's just not conducive for me being a good neighbor. Or I'm a student, and I don't live in your traditional neighborhood. Or I'm not in Boston for a very long time, and so I'm not going to really be able to get to know people. What if you made use of the time you actually had? Or I have young children, and so I, I really can't do it right now. Can I just say for my family, one of the best things I've done for my family is just try to live out the mission of Jesus with my family, and they see that example. Or I have crazy neighbors. <laughs> you can't. They're crazy. You don't know. We all have crazy neighbors. We can't make excuses for the thing that Jesus says is the most important. Are we really going to make excuses for what Jesus says is the greatest of the commandments? 
Do we know the story of the Good Samaritan? I know some of us know that story, you're familiar with it. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. At an earlier date than what we're reading here, another lawyer approaches Jesus with another question. And he says to Jesus, says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and Jesus responds with a question. I love how Jesus does this. He's so smooth. He responds with a question, question for a question. He says, well, what's in the Bible? That's a big, that's a big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what do you say is in the Bible? And the lawyer responds with the Shema. He says, you shall love God and you shall love your, your neighbor. And Jesus says, all right, you've answered well. Now do it and you will live forever. <laughs> okay. And the next verse, I think we skip over this one a lot, is really interesting. And, and, and here's what it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. Luke chapter 10, 29 says, but he, that's the, the, the lawyer, but, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Did you catch that? So Jesus said, yeah, okay, you got it right. Yeah, love God and love your neighbor. And so the guy tries to justify himself and says, well, then who is my neighbor? What does it mean when it says that he's trying to justify himself? It says that as a good lawyer, he's playing the part of a wordsmith, and he's trying to define neighbor in such a way that he himself wouldn't be guilty and would therefore be able to inherit uh, eternal life. I mean, who is my neighbor really, right? You know, I mean, who, who's my neighbor? I mean, who do you really want me to love? Do we do this sometimes? Do we try to find loopholes in the commandments? Like God, I mean, really, who's, who, who's my neighbor? I mean, I love people. I love my metaphorical neighbor, right? And we take the commands of God like this and just turn it into a metaphor. And so we can't really live it out because we don't really have a a clear identity of who our neighbor is. And so I'm telling you the identity as we move forward for us is going to be your literal next door neighbor. Let's not make it a metaphor so that we're not indicted as guilty. Let's make it our literal neighbor. Let me give you Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, 26, a really important passage. It says this, it says, and he, God, made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Did you hear that? God made from one man, that's Adam, every person. We've all descended from Adam. And he, God, determined the allotted period. So we're in this age. You ever wondered, like, why wasn't I born in the dark ages? Right? You're here on purpose. In this season, this age on purpose, this period on purpose, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God, sovereignly, intricately involved in the details of this world, drew up your plot plan for your property and says, right here either for a year or for a decade or for your lifetime, right here. He determined your location, your boundaries, and your era. He says, this is where you are ministering to this crazy set of people on purpose. So when you come in, you shut the door, and you're like, whoo, refuge. Those people are crazy, right? Remember that God says, yeah, but I I drew that place for you. You're you're uniquely wired to minister to the people that are around you. Do you believe that? That you have before you, literally, 
the opportunity of a lifetime. Even if it's just one semester, even if it's just one year, even if it's just a two-year graduate program or a four-year undergraduate program or a six-year undergraduate program or whatever it ends up being, or or if it's just a a few years and then you're eventually going to move out to the burbs, Jesus says, let's do what matters most. It's not a coincidence. There are no coincidences in God's economy. So no more excuses. No more excuses. Here's the challenge. The challenge for us this morning is let's take the great commandment literally. Let's seek to literally love our neighbors. And so you may have noticed inside of your river guides this card that we provided for every single one of you. It's a card and it has nine boxes on it. This is not something we would typically do around here. We borrowed this chart from this great little book called The Art of Neighboring. We've gleaned lots of the ideas from this little book. But in the middle of this box is one box. That's your place. It might not look like that. I don't think you have a green house and an orange roof. But the eight houses surrounding your house Three in front of you, two behind, three behind you, two beside you. Many of you live like that. I do. Many of you do not live like that at all. You don't live on a grid. It's Boston. There's no such thing as a straight road, and so you're just, it's funky. Some of you live in an apartment building, and you're that guy, and then there's the places above you and below you. But they represent the, the eight neighbors closest to you. How many of us could fill in each of those boxes and give the names of those eight neighbors. The greatest commandment, love God, and flowing out of that to love your neighbors. Do we know who our neighbors are, literally? How are you supposed to love somebody if you don't even know their name? Gotta know their names. I wonder if we could go beyond that and maybe write some, just some facts in the boxes about our neighbors. I'm not talking like red roses in the front yard because <laughs> you observe that from the street. But like, he works in the Longwood district. Or she's a student here. Or she's a doctor over there. Or he works at Dunkin' Donuts or whatever it may be. He's a veteran. I wonder how many of us could go beyond that and even write greater detail than, than that. Some really meaningful stuff. Like, what drives this person? Or what makes them anxious? What keeps them up at night? What is their religious thinking? What are their greatest concerns in in life? And so, this is your assignment. I don't usually give homework assignments. You said, Josh, this is the first week of school. Are you kidding me right now? This is your your assignment. I want to challenge you to, to move from strangers to acquaintances. Maybe next week, now, now you've actually met some people. And then beyond that, I want to move from, from acquaintances to you actually have a relationship with people. You actually are, are living out the great commandment. What if we all lived this way? Can you imagine if we, we all lived this way? Why do we do it? We do it, one, because Jesus commanded it. He said this is the most important. 
And two, because we trust that Jesus commands for us what he knows is best for us. Because he wants you to have a web of relationships so that you can be cared for. And so that you can stop being so consumed with yourself because you're focusing on other people and your issues don't seem as heavy when you're concerned with other people's issues. You see how that works? It's an amazing thing that Jesus does. It's like he knows what he's talking about. And we need to be reminded that, that Jesus is God who moved to earth to be our neighbor. And that's the ultimate example, isn't it? That Jesus is the good and perfect neighbor. And he enters in to Nazareth. And he grows up among poor people. He enters into our mess and our, our pain. And he loves us, just like he tells us to love your neighbor. He loves to the ultimate end. He loves to the point of death. We say, I love you to death. I mean, he, he really loved you to, to death, dying on the cross, taking on your payment for sin, death. And he didn't have to because he was sinless. So he didn't deserve the wages of sin, which is death. But he took it on because he loves you. And so some of us today need to receive Jesus' offer of neighboring to you, where Jesus says, I love you to the point of death. And you need to say yes to Jesus. And some of you have never done that. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the eternal wage of sin, which is death and death eternally and separation from God. Some of us need to say yes to Jesus' offer of being our good and perfect neighbor. I'd call you to that. Call upon the name of the Lord as we sing and and pray and respond. Others of us in here, we just need to start with some confession, myself included. God, I confess to you that I could be a better neighbor. That I, truth is, I don't love my neighbor as much as I love myself. For sure. That's where we start. And then we receive his mercy that is freely given to us. He says, I know. I know. But I still love you and I still have a plan. It's a fresh start. Let's go at it. Let's do it. Let's love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. So some of you receive Jesus as your good neighbor. Others of you, listen. Receive the grace of Jesus. I had a lot of neighbors come up to me this week while we're out pulling weeds and doing some work around the house. The guys came to haze me. We also had some neighbors come with some pies and some cookies and a $50 gift card to Roach Brothers. How about that neighbor? Right? Wow. Some good gifts. I'm feeling a little sluggish today because I've been eating. But no gift compares to the gift of Jesus. He says, I'll be your good neighbor. I'm the perfect neighbor. I'm going to love you to death, even death on the cross. And in light of that, let's respond. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we'll partake of communion together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. And something so simple that rarely gets lived out. God, would you help us as your people put here in this period, in this particular section of the world, of our country, of New England, of our city, of our neighborhood, on our street, surrounded by people, 
that you've called us to love, would you help us? We cannot do it on our own strength. Would you give us eyes to see the needs of people? That we might look like Jesus looked upon the crowds and have compassion upon them. And forgive us for when we don't. And for those who need to receive Jesus as the good, the perfect neighbor, who love them so well. And they say yes to you. And they stop resisting your offers, your knock at the door. And may they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And do your work in our hearts as we respond in song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.